If you have a Bible, I encourage you to get there. Acts 16. If you don't have a Bible, we will be... um, uh, you can look at a, a Bible near you. There's one at the end of uh, many of the rows. Just um, poke your neighbor on the shoulder, ask for one. If you don't own one, we have some giveaways out in the uh, foyer out there that we would love for you to take, uh, just have, because the Word of God is so precious, and that's how God guides us and teaches us. And so we want that for you. Um, but what I would like to do is I would love to read. We're going to go through the whole chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But I just want to highlight um, one section here in the book of Acts. And we will begin at, um, we'll read verses 1 through uh, 10. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 10. The Word of God reads as such. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. That means many were changed, converted. Verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let me ask for the Lord's help. Father, we need your help to hear We need your help to understand. We need your help to see you, for those are spiritual eyes that are required. We need you to break down our defenses and to awaken our heart. We need you to give us joy. I need you to help me articulate accurately and biblically and faithfully in a way that you get glory and we are seeing how much we need you. Lord, we come as needy people right now. And I just ask that you would accompany the lonely, you would encourage the faint-hearted, you would uphold the weak, you would admonish the unruly, and right now, through your patience, you would draw us to you. And so I pray that your power would be seen in amazing ways in our hearts as individuals and in us as a church, that this city and to the ends of the earth might be changed. So now do an amazing work, I pray. I trust you for it. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, we value being guided. We love being shown the direction. My family and I were driving in the midst of this storm on Friday evening, and as we were driving through, all of a sudden, right near like Trader Joe's Costco area, all the traffic lights go out at 5 o'clock. 
That is a recipe for mass chaos. And so as we're driving down, you have these people coming off the interstate trying to merge into four lanes of highway heading down Falls of the Noose, which is always entirely too narrow as it is. And so, and there's no one there to direct anything. So a few people get nice, you know, and they kind of stop. And so all of a sudden the floodgates open off the interstate and four lanes of traffic try to merge on. Well, then the question is, when do you decide enough's enough and keep moving forward? So you could see the deliberation in the few cars before me. And all of a sudden we started edging forward. But these people did not want to stop for they were really happy to be going forward. So they're merging. We're going. And nobody could tell what lane they were supposed to be. And I felt like I was back in Ethiopia. And so as we were traveling down, that's where three lanes become five all of a sudden. And so as we were traveling down, all of a sudden, you know, in big cities, you use your horn a lot. In the south, you don't use your horn a lot. So when I lived in Minnesota, horn was pretty common. Here, I never use it. So I did this time. Good night. This bad boy was just coming right at me. He totally didn't care if I was there. And all of a sudden, I was just asking, like, in my heart, like, would somebody just get here and make this chaos ordered? I just want some. And so then we kept driving more traffic lights out, and I was just expecting wrecks. It gives us a lot of comfort when there are those guys there saying, hold your horses. Okay, now you come on through. Now you stop. Now you come on through. We value guidance. We value order, whether it's a traffic light or whether it's a person. That's why many people, if they would admit it, they love even to go to counseling. They love to sit down to share their heart and somebody encourage them and help them on a way forward. Many times that's why people come to church. They're looking for some sense of guidance for how life should be ordered, what purpose exists and how we should live. We value guidance. And in this text today, what we are going to see is that God guides His people. And that as God guides, He is always guiding His people into love. God guides His people into love. And so the question that I just want you to put on your back and kind of walk through this whole time is, how is God guiding you into love? Love could be nebulous, like what what does that mean, love? Uh, Well, the Bible is clear, like the whole Bible is summarized in two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. God is always guiding you into a deeper relationship with Him, and He is positioning you in such a way that you can extend His love to somebody else. That is how God is guiding you moment by moment, day after day, and you should ask yourself the question, How is God guiding me into His love? What's He doing in my life that is calling me into a deeper relationship to Him? What's He doing in my life that's positioning me to help love somebody else? That's how your life is being guided. And so let's see specifically how this text kind of leaps off the page at God's guidance. There's going to be four main ideas I'll run through them quickly, but you'll get them kind of as we go. That God is guiding you, God is guiding His people to bring hope to the hopeless, verses 1 to 5. God is guiding His people according to His gracious plan, His gracious plan, verses 6 to 10. He is guiding His people and guiding you into salvation, 
And then He is guiding through suffering. So that's where we're headed today. So let's just go and begin here with God is guiding you to bring hope to the hopeless. And this is what we see at the beginning. Verses 1 through 5. Now, so in case you're new to the church, uh, this is now beginning to tell us about a man named Paul. Paul was converted, that is changed, his life radically altered, and he began to follow, love, worship Jesus Christ with his life. And God used him mightily to spread the Christian faith. And so right, right now what we are seeing is what's called journey two, so to speak. He went on one missionary journey for about a year and a half, and he finished it up in Jerusalem. So there was this church called Antioch, and it was like a sending church, and they sent them out all around this area. And then Paul comes back to Jerusalem, and he hangs out there for like one or two years. While he was in Jerusalem, the church meets and began to hear that some churches were saying that certain things were needed in order to be accepted by God. That is, specifically, circumcision. Those who were non-Jews had to do this act of circumcision in order to be accepted by God. And the apostles and the elders, along with the church, but the apostles and the elders, made the decision to say, no, this isn't a deal. That is, adding to... The gospel. The gospel is you are saved by faith alone. Not by what you can do for God. What He has done for you is how someone is saved. And so, now they had this message that they wanted to take to the churches they had already been to. And so now we begin to see a second missionary journey. And this one takes about two and a half to three years. And so Paul then begins to go backwards through the churches that he um, had already visited, and this is where we begin to see what he's doing here. Paul says, verse 1, Luke is the author of this um, book, the book of Acts, but speaking now of Paul. Verse 1, Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra. Derbe was the last church he visited on journey 1. So he's kind of going backwards through them. So he goes to Derbe and to Lystra, which is in what is modern day Turkey area. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, not a follower of Jesus. And he was well spoken of by the brothers, that is, Timothy. And so Paul said he wanted Timothy to join Paul on this journey. Now, there was a problem. People knew that his daddy was a Greek and he was going into areas where there was a um, a lot of Jewish individuals. And so, it would be an immediate stumbling block for him to go and for him to not have followed into kind of the Jewish tradition. So, what's ironic is this. Add nothing to the gospel. For you and I are saved by faith alone. Not by what we can do for God. But yet, in our path of love, sometimes the freedoms that we have we will put aside in order to bring hope to the hopeless. I mean, this is serious. (laughs) This man did not have to be circumcised. Hopefully you know what that is. And this this is a man, okay? He's not like eight days old. He's a man. And now he's getting ready to walk what will be about a 400 mile journey on foot. (laughs) That's right. I'm just waiting on it to land. (laughs) Just waiting on it to land, sports fans. This is serious. Why in the world did you do such a dumb thing? 
Because you wanted nothing to stand in the way of someone being changed by Jesus. The only thing He wanted to be the barrier to someone hearing the good news of Jesus, for them to come to Jesus, the only thing that He wanted to be a barrier was the fact that they hear that Jesus Christ died for their sins, that they are sinners and they must repent of their sins and embrace Jesus. And if they don't alter their life, they will be condemned to a sinner's hell. But Jesus has rescued them if they will trust in Him. That's the only thing He wanted to be the barrier. And sometimes we can bring in our own barriers, wanting people to act in a certain way as we act, as we follow Jesus. But all we're doing is we're putting up barriers. It could be what we eat. It could be what we watch. It could be our political position. It could be what we have never really understood as our own culture our own ethnicity. But then when we are slammed up against another ethnicity, we realize, hey, there are other ways to do things. What we need to begin to do is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 9, we become all things to all people that we might win some. We want nothing to be a barrier to the Gospel but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, raised from the dead. And the message is, everyone must repent and trust in Him for eternal life. So friends, God was guiding Paul and now Timothy into this opportunity to take the good news to people who didn't know it. You see it in verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them uh, for the uh, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders. So he was taking to these churches what the apostles and elders uh, had made a decision about in Acts 15. But what drove Paul to do this was just the fact he cared about these churches. He wanted them to know how much he cared. It says in actually chapter 15 verse 36, it says that Paul proclaimed, wanted to go and proclaim the word of the Lord and see how those churches were. I want to take on my shoulders a 400 mile journey by foot because I just want to see how you're doing. God guides His people to love. Love is not the easy path. But He guides His people who have been changed, who've been given hope. He guides you to bring hope to the hopeless. That means in your neighborhood, to your family, in this city, to your workplace. That's how God guides His people. That's what we see here with Paul. Now also, number two, God guides His people according to His gracious plan. According to His gracious plan. Now what is really amazing is what happens now. Paul and Timothy, they're going and they're taking the good news along with Barnabas. And they're taking the good news. And it says in verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and many people were added to their numbers. Just the power of the gospel, the power of that simple message of Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead that was just changing lives right and left. And the church is growing. And so 
If you're Paul and you're thinking, okay, I'm on this journey, I'm just going to go to the next place and the next place and share the good news and watch more and more people come to faith, look what happens in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. There's something going on in their heart through circumstances, through impressions. We don't even have a clue exactly how the Holy Spirit made this clear to them. But they were to stop preaching here and move on. Which means, okay, they're making their plans. Okay, we're just going to plug through this area here. It seems wise. It seems good. And then... You know, there could be some circumstantial barrier. Some inability to travel through that way. It could have been some sense that as they're praying, God just really presses in on their heart. Don't go here. You do not need to be here. But at bottom line, they're having to change their plans. Have you ever had that happen? This is what needs to happen. That's how we talk. And then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God prods, pushes, encourages, throws circumstances at us. The Holy Spirit begins to, in this case, forbid them to preach this good news that was already converting many people. Well, it only gets more complicated because look at verse 7. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia. Okay, I'll push this place aside. I'm going to keep trucking along. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. What in the world is happening here? What is happening? And so we look at verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us there. So Paul had never been to that region of the world. It's basically entering into what is now present-day Europe. It's going into Greece. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God was leading us there to preach the gospel. Very, very interesting what was happening. God guides according to His gracious plan. Sometimes He works with our wisdom and our plans, and other times He works contrary to them, but He is always working according to His gracious plan. Let's see how this plays out in another passage of Scripture, Proverbs 16. In the Proverbs, this tension of how we make decisions, how we are responsible, and how God is overall working everything according to His purpose and plans, these kind of tensions begin to hit us in the brain. It's like, okay, we're, are, we, are we doing this? Is God doing this? How's this all working out? And Proverbs 16.1, and Proverbs 16 verse 9 help us to understand. Proverbs 16.1 says this, The plans of the heart belong to man. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Verse 9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Are your plans your plans? Yes, they are. Are you responsible for your plans? Yes, you are. 
Bad decisions deserve consequences of which you are responsible for. The plans of the heart belong to the man. The man is responsible for those plans. The heart of the man plans his way. You are responsible for your actions. And yet, whether it's the words that come out of your mouth or the actions that end up happening, it is God who is ultimately determining the outcome. God's plans cannot and will not be thwarted. Not by your good decisions nor your bad ones. God's plans will always come about. The heart of the the plans of the heart belong to the man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now all of a sudden, our mindset here in the West, begins to call foul, scream, and say, well then, I'm just a puppet on a string. I have no choices. No, that's not what I said. You are 100% responsible for your actions. You are making your decisions and your choices. That is what you are doing. And God is 100% determining the outcome. Not 50-50. Not 60-40. Not 80-20. No matter what way you want to slice the percentages, you're responsible. God is determining and in control. There it is. That is the biblical tension. And if you want to begin to say, well, no, this is the way our culture talks, I'm completely responsible for the outcome of my decisions. And God then just kind of comes along and kind of helps me along and and I'm determining things. Like one of my favorite movies was uh, growing up was Back to the Future. You know, Marty McFly. And Marty McFly, was uh, Doc Brown was always at the end and he would say, you know, the outcome, basically your decisions are determined, are determining the future, so make it a good one. Your decisions are going to determine your future, so make it a good one. Friends, I don't think anybody wants that, his, that story. We would be paralyzed if that were the case. Let's just take my crazy life for one thing. I remember sitting on my bed as an 18-year-old trying to decide where to go to college. As I was sitting on my bed, I had two legitimate scholarships to two places. They almost seemed equal. What would I do? Where would I go? There wasn't any clear financial win one way or the other. I had a few friends going to kind of both places. There was nothing really to help me make a decision. And I had to make a decision in one evening because the next morning I had to sign that paper that said I wanted a certain scholarship from a certain place. What do I do? If If my decisions are what determine all of the outcome, here's what would have happened if I made the wrong choice. And went to the other school. I would have not met my wife. I would not have my children. I would have had no time with one of the people who was one of the kind of the founding pastors here at this church, Kent Caps, who was kind of grew up with me in college. He was the one that tipped me off to saying, hey, you should go uh, to Minneapolis and do an urban ministry um, apprenticeship kind of thing there and kind of learn urban ministry. 
So I would have never gone to Minneapolis. I would have never fallen in love with the city. I would have never heard about church planting, which is the first place I heard about it there in 2001. Therefore, there would have been no planting this church here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and there would be none of this happening right now. All because of that one decision. Do you really want that burden on your shoulders? I don't care whether you want it or not. I'm going to tell you how the Bible says it is. If all of future is determined by how you make your decisions, you will be and should be paralyzed. You would not want to get out of bed in the morning. Because one wrong decision can spiral everything off into chaos. But that's not what the Bible says. Nor is everything fully determined as if your decisions don't matter a hill of beans. That would lead to passivity. Your decisions matter. You are responsible for them. If you choose not to follow Jesus, you have earned the punishment that you deserve. Friends, we are completely responsible. Things are completely determined. God is completely sovereign. Therefore, what is our response? The very same chapter, Proverbs 16, verse 3, says this, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Tim Keller lays out this verse and he says, what, what seems to come off that page is, if you do things for God, then the things that you do are going to succeed. That's what that kind of seems like it says. That's not what it's saying. This idea of commitment is to roll things off your shoulders, completely surrendering your life to God, and then God will make you into a person that makes wise decisions. I'll say it again. It's not that if you start thinking a little bit more about God, then all of your plans that you do are going to go wildly successfully. That's not what it's saying. It's saying the response to we are responsible and God is completely in control is that we roll everything in our lives to Him. We shouldn't be carrying that burden. Everything is given to Him. There's no segment of our lives that we segment off and say, God doesn't touch that. No, everything in our life is for Him. And our, our hard work is to constantly plead for Him to invade and to uncover and to help us press more and more into Him. And as we do that, we will be made into people who make more and more wise choices. So many of you are having decisions that you have to make. Should I follow Jesus or not? Should I be baptized or not? Should I work here or not? Should I move to this city or not? Should I marry this person or not? How do you begin to make these decisions? I just want to lay out just briefly, and we did a whole series on this a few years ago, entitled Worship and Wisdom. That's how you make decisions. You worship God. Press into Him. And as He shapes your heart, as you seek counsel from others, you make a decision. And you don't fret that, oh no, I'm going to totally destroy my life. God is not being elusive and He's not a secretive God. He wants you to press into Him and He will guide you. He will take you where He wants you to go. He will, as the proverb says, establish your steps.
so you can rest in His control. You don't have to second-guess things. God is going to take you where you are. And if you've made a, quote-unquote, maybe not the wisest decision, He still takes you and turns you. You want to know God's will? You're in it right now. He is taking you along. He is guiding you. It's what He does. He guides His people. And specifically, how do you know specifically the will of God? From His beautiful Word. This is where you know God is guiding you to love God and God is guiding you to love others. God doesn't want you killing people. He doesn't want you being bitter, talking bad about people, gossiping. Those things are means of life to you to avoid those and to press more into Jesus. Friends, as Paul and them were making these decisions, they made the decisions about what was wise to them, and God guided them, pressed them, turned them, all so that they might know Him better and they might make Him known. God guides always into love. Loving God and loving others. So... Put all of your weight upon the Lord is the action step. Press deeper into Him. Seek counsel from those who know and love Jesus. Don't try to do this on your own. And then, make a decision. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. The Spirit of God will give impressions and He will give encouragement. Sometimes He even gives visions. But even in the book of Acts, that is a rare way that decisions are made. In the New Testament, that is rare that visions are the main means for guiding people. So please, do not wait to make decisions based upon whether you get a vision or not. Worship our great God. Seek counsel. Don't do this on your own. That's the church. And then make a decision. And God will guide you. Give you impressions. Encourage your heart. And this is what we see here. Paul had a vision though here. God clearly was going to speak into this and He gave him a picture of a man. A man in an area of Macedonia that he'd never been to. A man that needed the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul was just like, okay. And then what did he do? Did he say, okay, I got this word. I'm going to do this. No. Immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding, we concluding, that God had called us, plural, to go into this area. And now Luke is actually including himself. The author is saying, hey, I went along with them. So Luke was joining them on this journey. But they together, they said, this seems to be the direction of God, so we're going to Macedonia. And now they're getting on a boat, and they truck on. And so it says in verse 11, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, which is a, a port city in Greece area back in that day. And from there they landed in a city called Philippi. One of the leading cities in that region of the world. And Paul and Barnabas and Timothy... It's actually Paul and Timothy because Barnabas and John Mark had been sent another direction after a dispute. But now Paul and Timothy and now Luke is joining them. And they are carrying the gospel there in Greece. God guides His people to bring hope to the hopeless. God guides His people according to His gracious plan. God guides His people into salvation. Into salvation. And now we have two amazing stories of conversion. 
story number one. There weren't synagogues in this Greek area, at least it didn't seem to be, but there were places where people would gather to pray. And so Paul ran to these places with his cohorts, and they went to these places of prayer. And there they encountered a woman named Lydia. And it was Lydia who was a cloth merchant. She sold purple cloths, which was something that was sold to the wealthy and probably made you a pretty penny. So more than likely, she is a wealthy woman. And indications are, because she's got a home big enough to begin to start the early church, that she is a wealthy woman. And so she's there. She's a God-fearer, the Bible says, but she doesn't know Jesus at all. And so Paul and them come, and they come to Lydia, and they begin to talk to her about the gospel. Look at verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia and from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And look at how our great God worked. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Some of you, that needs to be your prayer right now. That the Lord would open your heart to pay attention And understand what God's Word is saying to you. How He is guiding you to love Him and to love others. But obviously she believed. When the Lord opened her heart, she heard, she believed. And after she was baptized, her household as well, she urged us saying, If you've judged me faithful to the Lord, come into my house. And they stayed with her hanging out with her in a way that confirmed that God was at work in her life and in her house. There's a second story. A story that we begin to see in verse 25. A story of God guiding people into salvation, opening the heart that they might believe. It's the Philippian jailer, verse 25. All of a sudden, Paul and Silas find themselves in prison And while they're in prison, they're praying and singing. And we'll get back to that. But the prisoners were listening to them. Earthquake comes. Doors are shaken. And everybody's kind of running amok. Now, if you were in prison and the doors shook open, what would be your first response? Bolt. That's right. Get me out of here. Prisons were not enjoyable places. They were usually, of course, you know, no sanitation or anything like that. Bunch of people in one location awaiting some sense of trial or um, something of further punishment. But Paul and Silas didn't leave. Why? So you've got Paul and Silas who are now in prison. Why didn't they leave? Well... We're not really told fully, but we get the picture when the jailer begins to... It says in verse 27, When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword ready to kill himself. His whole job was to keep these guys in. And now they're out. And yet it's it's dark down there, so you can't see everybody. And all of a sudden, Paul cried with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Never having heard of the good news of Jesus. And they 
tell him in verse 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And this message is not just for you. It's for you and your household. Anybody who will trust in the name of the Lord Jesus can be saved. That's the good news today for you in this room. This isn't a message for those who've cleaned themselves up. This isn't a message for just those who have a greater IQ than another. This is a message that says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who says, I can't save myself. I need Christ to rescue me. Now I need Him to break in and give me new desires and give me hope. I believe He is my only hope to wash my sins away and to give me an eternal life with Him. That's the belief. That's the repentance that's being called for. And he did. He trusted in Jesus. And it says in verse 32, They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in their house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And now here's what's pretty amazing. Washed the wounds, and I can almost see it. Paul and Silas had been beaten, and they're cleaning off these wounds. And it's almost as if Paul took the opportunity to say, Can I tell you about something that's done to symbolize about how Jesus has already washed your heart because you've trusted? Can I tell you about this thing called baptism that is an outward symbol of what God has already done in your heart that shows you that God doesn't just wash... You're not just washing these wounds, but He washes hearts. He cleanses hearts. Because, look what it says. The same hour of the night, they washed their wounds, and He was baptized at once, He and all His family. It's like they were having this conversation. Paul took the opportunity, and all of a sudden, he got baptized. Friends, any of you who are contemplating baptism, because we will be baptizing this afternoon, about 5.30 or so, Any of you who are contemplating, should I be baptized? Look at the text. First of all, in the New Testament, you get saved, you get wet. That's what happens. It is a public testimony to the world that Jesus changes lives. And it is a step of obedience. Did the jailer have to get a little bit more education before he was ready to be baptized? No. You don't have to... Baptism is not a waiting until you are super spiritual and then you can get dunked. No. It's what you do. It's the first step of obedience in the infancy of your faith that says, I love my Jesus and He has changed my life and I want to die to sin. That's what it means to go under the water. And I believe that Jesus rose from the dead to conquer my sin and I want to live for Him. That's the picture of baptism. That's what you'll see this evening. And some of you, you need to take that first step of baptism. You say you're believers, but you've never follow Jesus in that step of obedient baptism. Please don't wait. The image that um, my family and I have talked about is the image of kind of walking as a little child. When, when a kid is kind of getting ready to walk and they pull themselves up on the table, they take these few steps and then they fall. Well, we don't criticize them for the fall. We celebrate the walking and as you continue to walk, you don't, they don't always just now perfectly, hey, I'm walking. No, they fall down. 
And heck, many of us still fall down today, right? That's why we're in the hospital sometimes. Or, you know, we stump a toe. Or, you know, how many of you have fallen down steps or up steps more likely for many of us? You know, we still got walking issues, right? We don't wait until we've got it all together to celebrate. And friends, baptism is not something that you wait until you've now reached this status of being able to walk with Jesus. But it's those first steps. Staggering though you may be, it's the first steps of obedience to say, I love Jesus and He's changed my life. And now as we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a minute, the Lord's Supper is meant to remind you of your baptism and say, what God did in me there... I trust Him today for that. I align myself with Jesus today. That is the Lord's Supper. And so, as God guides, He's guiding you to bring hope to the hopeless. He's guiding you according to His gracious plan. And He's guiding you into salvation to either celebrate it or to live in it. To trust Him. But friends, sometimes I just want you to know, sometimes that's going to come through pain. Sometimes it's going to come through suffering. Do you know how Paul and Silas got themselves into jail? There was this woman out there who was a fortune teller, and she began to follow Paul and Silas around, and she was cursing at... Or she was not cursing at them. I just totally made that up. That's not in the Bible. Just seeing if you're awake. She was actually saying, Look, they're preaching Jesus. They're preaching Jesus. And apparently, Paul just did not want her to be associated with them because she was a fortune teller. And he says he got greatly annoyed, and he said... He saw ultimately that there was some demonic work going on in her heart and he cast out that demon. Well, she was actually owned. She was employed by people who now lost all of their money because she wasn't a fortune teller anymore. The demon was cast out and now they lost their profits. So they went and got the officials, had Paul and Silas arrested and they were put in jail. But I want you to see something. This is something that's really precious even about the pain that you might be experiencing. What did that suffering get them? You might say, oh, it got them beatings on the back and it got them imprisonment. But what else? Would they have ever been in contact with that Philippian jailer had they not been beaten and put into prison? God is guiding even through suffering to position us into places where we might love and sometimes taking us into places we would never voluntarily go ourselves. But through some of the difficulty, He positions us that we might love Him more, but that we also might make Him known. Our God guides. He's guiding you to bring hope to the hopeless. He's guiding you according to His gracious plan. He is guiding you to either be saved or to celebrate your salvation. And sometimes that will be through suffering. But always, He is guiding you to love Him and to love others. Let's pray. Father, I ask that right now as we ask that question, God, how are You guiding and positioning our lives to love You? What are You doing in our lives that we might be positioned to love others? I pray that You would speak a message of peace. For if we trust You, if we trust You with our future, and we're not paralyzed by our decisions, 
There will be calm in our storms and there will be trust in your goodness. And so that's what I ask for in these moments, that God, you would build up our trust in you and believe that you are a good God guiding us, guiding us into all truth. Father, I just ask for those who need to make decisions, I pray that, God, you would help them to press deeper into you. God, I pray. I pray that you would help those who don't know Jesus to know Christ. And I pray for others in this room who are just struggling to trust God in the midst of their difficulties that they would believe that He is working all things, that they might know His goodness and make His goodness known. Please, oh God, I pray, give us a sense that You are a good God, a good God, and You're inviting us into Your love right now. Train up our hearts, I pray, in Jesus' name. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together.